My apologies for the slightly late start. Uh, I don't know whether I'm in anywhere like the centre of the frame of that picture. Uh, you guys don't care. What, does it look all right to you? It looks fine. All right. Thank you for your patience, those of you who are at home. My goodness, do we have some things to think about this evening. I even felt a diagram coming on by mid-afternoon, so we've got this whiteboard behind me. Thank you to uh, Taylor for erasing the strange collection of conjugated and uh, parsed verbs and adjectives that was all scattered all over it. Let me lead us in prayer, and um, then, by God's grace, we will kick off with Ecclesiastes chapter 7. The first half of Ecclesiastes chapter 7 is where we are today. I'm out of breath, running up and down stairs, trying to get things right. Okay, let's pray, then we'll get going. Merciful Father, we are grateful to you for your kindness to us in everything, in so many ways. We have you to thank for life and breath and everything else and for Christ and for one another and for your word, the Bible, and for this place in which to meet and for every good gift that flows to us from your hand. And so we ask that you would add to those good gifts today. How dare we do such a thing, Father, except that we know that you're a good and merciful God, abounding in compassion and love for those whom you have made and redeemed in Christ. So please, would you work in us gloriously and wonderfully this evening. Help us to see things in the deep mysteries of your word that will open our eyes to your ways and to what's right and wise for us to do in the complexities of life's mist and confusion. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Ecclesiastes 7 from verse 1. It goes, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is hevel, mist, vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked. I'm not sure whether that last verse belongs with this section or with the next section. It might be both, but anyway, if we get that far this evening, you'll have to tell me what you think. Uh, Today, I want to think about making difficult decisions. Making difficult decisions. You'll notice, just as we read through that passage, a number of times... One thing is said to be better than another. Do you notice that? It's better 
to have a good name than literally good oil. And uh, it's translated precious ointment because that's probably what it uh, refers to. But um, it's a wonderful uh, wordplay with um, name, Shem, and oil, which is Shemem, I think. I forget. But it's a kind of beautiful little mini chiastic alliteration going on there. But better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Sorrow better than laughter. Uh, better to hear the rebuke of the wise than the song of fools. Better the end than the beginning. Better to be patient than proud in spirit and so on. And so um, what I want to suggest to you is, and we'll see this as we unfold this text tonight, that this, this text is all about making difficult decisions when what you've got to figure out is what's the better thing to do. What's the better thing to do? You've got a choice between two or three or four or 768 options. And you've got to figure out which one is better. Now, to introduce this, and this is where I felt the diagram coming on, um, I want to to, uh, highlight for you why some decisions are easy and some decisions are inconsequential, even if they're not easy, but other decisions are hard. What is it that makes a decision difficult? Um, and Because it's those kinds of difficult decisions that uh, Kohelet Solomon is talking about tonight. So just think for a second. There are some decisions which are really, really straightforward because they are matters of plain right and wrong. Yeah, we're not going to have long, complicated discussions about whether you should cheat on your exams at college. Right? Don't cheat. We're not going to have long, complicated discussions about whether or not you should tithe. Tithe. I mean, we might have a fairly complicated discussion on what you should tithe on, given the complexity of our tax regime and the fact that a much simpler tax regime was anticipated in ancient Israel. Uh, But the principle of whether or not we should tithe is not a difficult one to grasp. And if you're finding it, if you're struggling with that, come and talk to me afterwards, because you can make your life a lot more difficult by withholding from the Lord what belongs to him and then waiting for him to take it away from you, because he will. If it's his, it will take it. it. It might be difficult to do what you ought to do in this case. It might be difficult to resist the temptation to cheat in the exam. It might be difficult to do all kinds of things that we know we ought to do. But figuring out whether or not to do it is not a difficult thing. It's a a morally consequential decision, which is very easy to make. Then there are other decisions, which they might be harder to make, but they don't matter so much. You know, should you have coffee or Earl Grey tea in the morning? Well, actually, maybe that does matter, now I think of it. Um, uh, uh, It... uh, it's family movie night. Hands up if you've ever had like family movie night. Do you ever do this? We're not the only ones. Sometimes we do this. Now, which movie do you watch? My goodness. I mean, sometimes you spend as long trying to figure out which movie to watch as you do watching the movie. Is that right? So you've got some decisions which are quite difficult to make, but really it doesn't matter whether we watch Lord of the Rings again or whether we watch Harry Potter again. <laughs> but it's like the decision that we normally have to make in our house. Um, and... So there's another kind of decision that we're not talking about. And, and this is the point at which the mathematician came back to life in me. And I, I suddenly thought, oh, you could draw a nice ne- little neat matrix of the four categories of decision that you could face. 
where on the x-axis, sorry, non-mathematicians, you've got easy and hard to decide what to do. And on the y-axis, that's going up the side, you've got ethically inconsequential, doesn't matter what you decide, and ethically consequential. So let me just draw this. So here's your little graph. And um, can you all see this? I don't know. Can you see this at home? If you can't see it at home, come to Bible study. You'll enjoy it. <laughs> They're all laughing. I'm not laughing at you. Right? Here, it's, it's easy to figure out what to do. And here, it's hard to figure out what to do. Okay? And on the y-axis here, it's um, ethically... Well, whose who's ringtone is that? Ethically unimportant or inconsequential. It doesn't really matter, you know, which movie you watch. And up here, you've got ethically important. Oops. I can't spell on whiteboards, as my Bible and theology students know very well. Right. And so then what we do is we divide this into four quadrants. You could see where this is going, couldn't you? Could you see where this is going? What are you shaking your head for? <laughs> so down here, you've got a decision which is really, really easy, but it just doesn't matter. Yeah? So this is the, the, the stuff that, like, um, tea or coffee. I mean, how, how many of you really get up in the morning and then start racking your brains for hours on end trying to work out whether to have Earl Grey tea? Or Really, you do? <laughs> just, just do whatever your sister does. You'll be so much quicker. You'll say, so tea or coffee is ethically inconsequential and it's easy. Then you've got um, things that are hard but um, ethically inconsequential. Like... Which movie should you watch on movie night, family movie night? Apparently, that's a difficult decision because you've got nine people all trying to contribute to it and you all want different things, so it's difficult. Then you've got things um, at the top over here which are ethically important but very, very straightforward. Yeah? Um, so cheat on... I, I was complaining about my theological students not having good handwriting, and uh, this is coming back to bite me. Um, uh, cheat on exams or tithe or not. Yeah, you can see those are really straightforward decisions that are ethically important. They're easy, ethically important. Now, here's the kicker. All the decisions in this box where they are hard decisions to make and they matter. I'm not going to try and write all in this box all of the tormented different things that, that might enter your mind at this point. Let me list a few of the kind of decisions which are probably quite consequential ethically from some perspectives and hard to figure out. I, so I wrote down a list of them earlier this week. Like, should I go to college? If so, which one? How much is it worth spending to go there? Um, how much is it worth borrowing if I had to borrow to go there? Um, 
if I'm going to go away from home in that kind of way, how far away from home should I go? Does it make any difference whether or not my sister or my big brother is already there? Uh, does it make any difference whether I'm male or female? Because most of the time, for most, on average, if you averaged out all the lifetime earnings of all the Christian men in this church and all the lifetime earnings of the Christian women in this church, you'd end up with a lower figure for the women because more of the women spend more of their time uh, raising children and doing hard work that nobody pays them for. So is it worth going into so much debt to get a college degree when you're not, you know? Uh, but the problem is you're not the average of all the women. You're you. And you've got to figure out what to do. And it's not obvious. It's certainly not obvious to me. If it's obvious to anybody else, I wish you'd tell me because I've got two daughters. Um, I think it'd be great for them to go to college and it's very tricky to work out how much it's worth spending to do so. Um, you're on vacation, Another set of questions. You're on vacation. Anybody ever been on vacation? Of course you have, right? With family. So you didn't get a choice about the location. And there are two churches within spitting distance. Uh, Roman Catholic with a Latin mass and Pentecostal charismatic with a female pastor. Where are you going to go? Turn on the TV. <laughs> Neither. Uh, that, maybe, that's, maybe that's a pretty straightforward decision. I don't know. Um, yeah, live stream, preach it, Pastor Neil. Um, uh, how often and for how long should you read your Bible every day? Here's a question that I asked. I, wanted, I put this survey out a couple of weeks ago, and I've been badgering you all about filling it in. Have you all filled in my survey? Please fill in my survey. I want to hear more, more from the kids. I've heard from like nearly 100 adults, which is fantastic. I haven't heard from all that many children yet. Maybe the children all read their Bible so much they haven't got time to fill in my survey. I don't know. <laughs> But it's interesting, how long? Like, how long is long enough? You want me to tell you in minutes? Difficult to figure it out. Children. Children introduce a monstrous cavalcade of issues in this box. As soon as you become a parent, you have to make decisions about things like, at what age is it wise for children to be given a mobile phone? At what age is it wise for them to be given the opportunity to socialise with Non-Christians say at a sports club or at a music, in an orchestra or some other kind of situation. And, and what difference would it make, what setting it's in and how long it is and how often and who they are and where it is and whether you're allowed to be with them. At what age is it appropriate for a young person to have a driving license? I know what the state of Texas says, but that's not the question, is it? At what age is it wise for a child, a young person, to receive a driving license? Uh, at what age is it wise for them to be given an increasing measure of social freedom? Are you, you going to let your eight-year-old go to that party? Probably not. What about your 16-year-old? Or your 17-year-old? Or your 19-year-old? How much social media time is too much? Actually, that's a really straightforward question. <laughs> well, it's not actually. It's actually not. It's a really straightforward question. What about TV? What about video games? Um, buying a house. Some of you are going to have to buy a house. Some of you already have. How much is it wise to spend? There have been times in the past where you could find a bank that would lend you some stupendous multiple of your income. Uh, in England, you could get that on a variable rate mortgage. Lord preserve you. If you did that at the wrong moment in history, took out six or seven times your income on a variable rate mortgage and then lost your job. Uh, buying a car, how much should you spend? Because if we go, just remember we were talking about last week about 
whenever you're looking for a product in a certain category, like a house or a car, your attention is always drawn to the high end of the category. And then if you just stretch the budget just a little bit, ooh, it's so much nicer. Always. And if you started off down here, you'd have exactly the same experience. And if you started off up here, you'd have exactly the same experience. But, you know, how much is it worth spending for, you know, just the extra two litres and the extra 50 horsepower and the, the heated seats and the talking drink holder and everything else? That, you know. A job. Now, here's really, really interesting. Some of you just setting out in married life. Some of you contemplating, uh, you know, your, your future and Okay, what kind of job do you want? What about a job that requires you to be away from home a week or two each year? Or a week or two each month? Or three some months? What about that? How much time away from home is okay? What's wise to do in these circumstances? Is it okay to have a job that does that? And what, does it depend? Presumably it depends on what the other options are. What about back to kids again? Uh, I remember in, in London, and it's probably similar in some parts of the US, perhaps not so much where many of you live in Fort Worth. Uh, most people live in an urban or rural setting, which is quite different from the suburban setting that uh, we lived in in London. But we had this constant question in our minds about, should we let the kids play outside? Should we let them go to the park? Should we let, when should we let them go? How long? Who with? Does it matter if it's after dark? And so on and so forth. This is London. You know, you, can, you close your eyes for five seconds, you wake up in a hospital bed with a knife sticking out of your neck. But um, is that a slight overreaction? Probably. It's very difficult to make judgments, especially judgments under uncertainty, which lie in this box in the top right. Can you see? And actually... Most of the decisions that occupy most of our headspace, by definition, are in that box. So think about it. The ones in the top left, well, if they're occupying your headspace, see me afterwards, right? Because if it's a straightforward choice of right and wrong, and you're thinking about it, <laughs> like, you shouldn't be thinking about that. Just like, really, you shouldn't be spending any time thinking about Earl Grey or coffee. You should just have a cup of Earl Grey and then have a cup of coffee, which is the right way to do it. I, I promise you, it's really nice. You have a cup of Earl Grey in the car on the way to work while you're drinking your breakfast smoothie, and then you get to the office and you put the coffee machine on, and then the day is set up to be splendid. That's how you should do it. You shouldn't be spending any time thinking about that. Bottom right, oh, come on. Spending all that time thinking about things that don't matter, really, we ought to try and eliminate those, because if it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. But that still leaves us with all the top right issues, the, the ones where they are hard to make and they are ethically significant. And you, are you with me? And I've just gave you, given you a, a bunch of examples. There are many, many more, and we'll probably come up with a few this evening. Now, let's try and think for a second what it is that makes these questions hard to resolve. We're going to get to Ecclesiastes in a second. So, Mr. Mr. Herrera, yeah, hit me. Oh, yeah, go on then. Well, what is it that makes these questions hard to resolve? Go on. How many other people it will affect? Mm-hmm. How many other people it will affect? And not knowing how many other people it will affect. All the uncertainty that's involved in them. Yeah. Good. Yeah, Taylor. What about when they are 
necessarily consistent person on scale of difficulty or on scale of uh, ethical importance, such yeah. as infant baptism or circumcision. More yeah, important yeah. to some people, less important to some people. Yes. Yes. So sometimes the problem is working out whether or not it's significant. You know, does it really matter? And it's not always obvious. Yeah, very good. And, and so, for example, um, the, the social media and smartphone for a 13-year-old thing is like that. Because somebody's going to say, yeah, mm, it, there's all this kind of research that says it, it messes with their brains. And, hey, giving a kid access to unfiltered internet can't be a great idea. And somebody's going to say, no, nah, it's okay, not our little darling. Not our little daughter. She'll be fine. It doesn't really matter, you see. So the way that you weigh these different considerations is, is significant. Yeah. I, I came up with... Oh, yeah, Mrs. Bennett, go ahead. Sometimes, uh, in tough things often involve people that are dependent on you. Mm-hmm. You're kind of making these decisions on, on behalf of your elderly parents or your children. Right, right. They have to weigh in Yeah, very good. So we're making decisions on behalf of other people... They have to live with the consequences. Speaking of consequences, sorry, Mr. Bennett, yeah. Right, yeah, very good. That was one of the things that I, I had been in, uppermost in my mind when I was thinking about it. Conflict between different considerations. I like to call this the um, apples and oranges factor. You're comparing apples and oranges. It's, in, in more formal terms, you're comparing considerations that aren't in the same category. If you've got a decision and the two choices, the difference is in the same category, it's easy. Do you want to spend um, $10 for a sandwich at lunchtime or $15 for an identical sandwich? 10 or 15 That's easy because... The 10 and the 15 are both dollars, yeah? But if you've got to walk half an hour to get the $10 sandwich or one minute to get the, the $15 sandwich, you, it's then more tricky because you're then trying to compare the cost of time, yeah? Different categories. And many of these things are exactly like that. So, for example, um, mobile phone for kids. Let, let's try do an experiment because... You guys, so have, hands up how many Claghorns have got a mobile phone? Hands up if you've got one. Really, none of them. Mr. Claghorn's there smiling <laughs> proudly. <laughs> Joel Draconian Claghorn over there. <laughs> All right, so, so give us some pros then of giving your... How old are you, Hannah? If you don't mind my asking, sorry. 17, <laughs> that's a very rude question to me, just to spring on you. 17-year-old... Uh, jail you're 15 or 16 yeah um the pros of giving uh, mr claghorn giving his 15 or 16 17 year old daughters a mobile phone what would be the advantages responsibility. Hmm? Teaching them responsibility. yeah teach them responsibility yeah yeah the most powerful learning tool that they will never use for their purpose. yeah <laughs> the most powerful learning tool that they will never use for that intended purpose yeah mrs bennett Right. Safety. Yeah. Yeah, it's easy. Don't give them a car. Not, not driving my truck. Easy. Keep them locked up. Right. So you can track them. You can keep an eye on where they are. It's quite reassuring for us to know that our son Ben has made it home from UT Dallas to the 
Capone's house where he's living. It's kind of reassuring, unless he just happens to have left his phone at home, you know, which I don't think he does very often. But what are the cons? What are the downsides? Come on. What, Mr. Clackhorn, what are the downsides? I mean, full disclosure, they do have laptops. The two oldest children. Right. They, have, you know, the they, they do have the learning thing with the laptops, yeah. yeah. But, but some, some downsides of giving your kids mobile phones. I mean, social media is a huge thing. Right, social media is a huge thing. It's whether they're ready emotionally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The maturity, the readiness. I mean, you can teach your kids irresponsibility just as easily as you can teach them responsibility. So can you see the issues here? It's, okay, just take two of those factors. Safety versus the highly plausible downsides of social media vacuousness. How do you compare them? It's like, it's quite hard, because they're not in the same category. It's not like comparing $15 with $10. You're comparing two... Apples and oranges, two different things. So that's, that's one of the things that makes these decisions so profoundly difficult. More generally, second point, um, these are decisions about wisdom, not about law. Think about that for a second. We don't want to say it doesn't matter, even though you will struggle to find a Bible verse that tells you what to do. Um, law broadly, not in the sense of the Old Testament law, but in terms of instructions about ethics, law is to do with rules and um, don't cheat in exams and um, the first 10% of our increase belongs to the Lord, those two examples. There are laws about that, there are rules, it's very straightforward to figure out what to do. But in matters like all the things we put in the right-hand box at the top, top right, You search the Bible in vain for a chapter or a verse about them. And yet you don't want to say they don't matter. And so what sometimes happens is people say, well, it's it's just about wisdom. As though that doesn't matter, because it's about wisdom. Like, you know, it depends how you see it. Well, and it does kind of depend how you see it. But that doesn't mean that each course of action is equally wise and good. And you get to a certain point where wisdom crosses over into well, where lack of wisdom, sorry, crosses over into sinfulness. It's not just unwise to play ping pong across the central median on I-30. It's like, it's, it's really, really morally culpably stupid to do that. Can you see what we're saying? And so the category of wisdom is one I want us to explore. And Ecclesiastes kind of takes wisdom to another level. We're used to wisdom. If, if I said, name a, name a book that belongs in the wisdom literature, what might you think of in the, in the Bible? Yeah, Proverbs, Proverbs. And the book of Proverbs, in one sense, it's not that it's simple because it's about wisdom, but what it does is it presents us with innumerable cameos of situations in which it makes observations about things or encourages us to make observations about things or makes comparisons or or states things which it then contradicts and it's inviting you to work out when is it wise to answer a fool according to his folly and when is it wise to not answer a fool according to his folly and you're supposed to process these things 
So the wisdom literature of the Bible is there to help us to generate the, the moral matrix to view the complexity of life with. So Proverbs sort of begins that. <laughs> Ecclesiastes cranks it into overdrive and steps on the gas and just keeps getting faster and faster and faster. And what I think it does here is to tackle very obliquely the question of wisdom by saying, in effect, forget about your question. Completely forget about your question. Let's approach decision-making from a completely different angle. Let's think about what's important in life. What things in general are better than others? Forget about whether or not to give your kid a mobile phone. Forget about whether or not to um, go to college. Forget about whether or not this job, which is a week away every month, is better than this job, which is two weeks away every year. Forget about all these things. Forget about all your agendas. And let's try and take a step back and create for ourselves a more textured matrix through which to view the complexities of life. Is, am I, are you with me? In other words, let's try and shape our character much more deeply. You know, sometimes you get this where a, a young person will ask a question, and it's a, it's a really kind of um, innocent question in a sense, but really um, they're not kind of emotionally ready to hear the answer. You, you, you know, some of you parents have had your children ask you questions like that. It's quite awkward because you, you want to, to tell them an answer, but you sort of know, you know um, they're not ready. Uh, if you have a child um, who has a beloved pet that gets hit by a truck and just smeared over 50 yards of the road. Would you want the four-year-old to see that? you just like... You do and you don't. You, know, you, you want them someday to get to the emotional and spiritual maturity where they can handle that, but they're four years old. Like, today is not that day. And here's our problem... For much of the time, we are spiritually four years old. Um, what happened to little Johnny? Little Johnny, the, the, the labradoodle. Can I see? And it's like, um, no, not really. <laughs> no. What we need to do is just, you need to grow up about 20 years, then you can see. And this is what I think Ecclesiastes is doing with our, our troubled questions. Except we haven't got 20 years. We've got um, 35 minutes. We started late. And the introduction is necessarily somewhat complex. Are you, you, you with me? What, what Kohelet wants us to do is to grow up really fast. By forget about your questions for a second, long enough to see the framework through which we should view them. So look. Chapter 7, verse 1. A good name 
is better than precious ointment. Just, let's just stop there for a sec. Now, um, literally, good name is, no, better is a good name than oil good. And it's a beautiful rhyming chiasm, good name, oil good. Spectacular poetry. Just feel the, the rhyming chiasm with me. There we are. You got that? Um, why? What's, what's he getting at? Hmm, yeah. Sometimes, though, I know that you said the protection from God's Yeah, if, if the oil were conceived as an ointment, like a protection, like a um, people used to smear um, lard or grease on themselves to keep mosquitoes and bugs away, um, perhaps. Oil was used in the ancient world more for um, medicinal and cosmetic reasons, though, than that, wasn't it? You think what, um, the Good Samaritan um, uh, poured oil on the wounds... And um, uh, oil um, was frequently fragranced, smelled nice. So good name, precious ointment, but a good name's better. So what's it getting at? Yeah. Oh. I, I always saw it as a good name is more valuable than precious ointment, which is a very valuable commodity back then. Right. Like almost like myrrh. Yeah. Take something really valuable. Like precious ointment. Well, a good name is even more valuable. So what's a good name then in this context? What does it mean? Um, in that, uh, someone that has preserved his integrity in, the, in, in not only God's eyes, but in the eyes of other men. Right. Preserved integrity in, in, in God's eyes, in the eyes of other people. Good reputation, would we say? Yes. Yeah? And precious ointment. I mean, especially if it a cosmetic function is in view. It's like, it's what people think of you, isn't it? Uh, for people to hold your name in high regard, or for you to look really pretty. <coughs> so your 13-year-old daughter comes and says, hey, I want to dye my hair. Can I dye my hair, Dad? I want to be blonde. And you search the Bible in vain. And you even get to First Peter 3 and then you ask your pastor and he says, no, it doesn't say that you're not allowed to braid your hair. It, what it says is that your braided hair should not be your adornment. It shouldn't be the thing uh, that you really, really regard as um, the thing that makes you special. But you're allowed to wear clothes. <laughs> well, the text says the putting on of clothing not fine clothing. So you're allowed to wear clothes, you're allowed to have braided hair, it's just not allowed to be your adornment. But your daughter says, she's 14, she says, it's not going to be my adorning. Please. <laughs> what, where, do you, where do you turn? And Bennett is going to answer for us. I'm not 14, but you want to So you want to take into account whether it's washout dye or permanent dye. We, we, we might be getting into questions of nitty-gritty detail here. How does the good name precious ointment thing work here? Does it inform that decision at all? How? 
Aaron's nodding, so you must have an answer. Finish your peanuts and then tell us. You got, is, that, is that trail mix? And where's mine? <laughs> no, no, it's fine. It's like, I've, got to, I've got to speak into this thing. I was thinking, as far as the good name or reputation goes, yeah. um, maybe, I've never dyed my hair, but maybe dyeing your hair blonde could injure that in a way. Mm-hmm. And then the adorning you're talking about would be the adorning of that blonde hair. So that's right, the way right. it would be Right. So, so 14-year-old. I mean, I cannot imagine what it's like to be a 14-year-old. Never mind a 14-year-old girl. Never mind a 14-year-old girl in 2022. I mean, what a nightmare. All of the, the normal kind of hormonal swirl of kind of female chaos, which obviously is not easy to handle, with all of the pressure to look Whichever look is in in vogue this year, and the problem is you're only fourteen. Your your character is still being formed in a way that, let's say, a woman of twenty five has attained a certain stability of character. And so, what do you want, ladies? Good name. You had your hand up a minute ago, Emma. I would, yeah. I would say once the pressure is pregnant, it adds to mm-hmm. your changing as a character, changes your whole, changes everything. Mm-hmm. Um, the one enhances and one complements. Yeah. How I would say. So yeah, interesting. That's something my dad always taught us girls is, is he says you should want to adorn yourself in a way that complements what God has already given you mm-hmm. versus trying to completely change and seek after something. Yes, yes, yes. So there is, a, there is definitely a distinction between, there's a scale, isn't there, between um, uh, trying to change what God has made about you and trying to enhance what God has made about you. But, but the difficulty is, well, first, where'd that scale come from? And is, it, is it really always bad to want to change things about yourself? And then even if, it, even if we decided this scale, we're going to run with it, well, there are things in the middle, right? Um, shaping one's eyebrows, for example. You know, it's like, that's difficult. But th- now, this doesn't answer the question, does it? C- but can you see how the good name, yeah, that's better than precious ointment. It bears on the question. Um, forgive me, I, yeah, you had your hand up, Teresa. I mean, Right, right. That's fascinating. No amount of ointment can soothe or make better a bad name. Putting lipstick on a pig. Putting lipstick on a pig. Still a pig. Thank you, sir. I appreciate you making that observation so that I didn't have to. <laughs> yeah. Um, Taylor, do you have your hand? Yeah. And if there's so much wisdom there, of course, part of the difficulty is, um, just to go back to my, I think, quite difficult, I personally, example, 
No 14-year-old girl has the first clue why she wants to dye her hair. I promise you. She might think she does. And I don't mean to criticise, I'm not getting on the case of 14-year-old girls at all. We talk about 14-year-old boys doing other different things. It's, but it illustrates the point that we are so out of touch with the reality of our own motives. And then, then here's Solomon saying, look, what, what are you striving for as a young person? Growth in character. And to appear in a certain way. Just, just, just which is better? Yeah. Sort of to the point that you mentioned with Proverbs sort of being the starting point, mm. Ecclesiastes being the sort of landing point. Mm. Proverbs brings up a good name in 22.1. It says, chosen rather than great riches. So, yes. the choice Yes. Ecclesiastes seems to present us just that a good name is better. Yes. It doesn't really say anointment, just presumably you go purchase. How do you go get a good name? Yes, yes. It doesn't, it doesn't it's, it's, it's harder to acquire a good name, isn't it? Yeah. Mr. Bennett, yeah. I'm looking at the second half of the verse. Mm-hmm. In the day of death, in the day of birth. Yeah. Very good. You get to the end of a, if you get to the end of a life, and it's been a good life, that has taken time. Yes. And a good name takes time. Yeah. Yes. You can go out and buy ointment anywhere. Yes, yes. So to to have our minds fixed on those things which are easy to lose, take a long time to gain, and are most precious. That the second half of verse one draws our attention to that. And that actually leads us into the next strand. I wanted to highlight because you notice uh, the parallelism in verse one. Let's just, just just glance down again. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death, impliedly, is better than the day of birth. And then you've got two more better, better statements, and they're all to do with death in the next three verses. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. In verse 3, relatedly, sorrow is better than laughter. And I want to explore this. Let, just, let me read from the second half of verse 1 all the way to, through to the end of verse 4. And then we'll try and figure out what this X is better than Y is trying to tell us. The day of death is better than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The, wise, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Okay, so how many of you were slightly taken aback by um, second half of verse 1? The day of death is better than the day of birth, yeah? Slightly bizarre. Um, Mr. Herrera, what do you think about this? You've got your hand up. Mm. Yes. 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 
upright person. Yeah, I think that that's very true and is probably part of the link to the beginning of verse 1. So, good name, precious ointment, day of death, day of birth. So the point is, good name on the day of death. So, insofar as it's talking about our death, and actually I don't think the focus is there. I'll come to why in a second. But the individual reading this, there's a sense in which you want to say, the day of my death, that's, it's better in the same sense that a good name is better. Can you see? Because on the day of your death, um, what will people talk about? Your, your life, your name, your character, your reputation. Nobody is going to be talking about how good-looking you are, even though you're superbly handsome, right? But nobody, nobody cares about that. On the day of your death, it's your character. It's your integrity. It's your name, your reputation. Nobody cares how strapping you were as a 22-year-old. But whatever age you live to, and however out of shape you are when you die, and however wrinkly, it's like, well, your character. So I think that's part of the comparison. But I also think there's something else going on here. Because look, I don't think that what's in view primarily is the death of the person reading this. Look, um, because verse 2 It's better to go to the house of mourning. Well, that means you're mourning somebody else's death. Can you see? It's not so much you're better off being dead than alive. It's certainly not saying that. It's not saying that the end of your life is, is, well, great, let's look forward to not being here anymore. (laughs) Because death is the great enemy in Ecclesiastes and actually in the whole Bible. It's slightly odd to be thinking that it'd be better to be dead at the end of our lives, because that's the tragedy that sin has brought into the world. But there's something about going to the house of mourning that makes it better than going to the birth centre in the hospital. And what is it? Look. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. What's in view here? What's in view is not your funeral, it's you going to somebody else's funeral. And what are you doing when you go? You're mourning... You're laying it to heart. What are you doing? Yeah. I don't want this to come off as a generalized statement, but uh, many people will uh, take uh, being happy with what could very well be a right heart. Few people will take being sad and still have a right heart. Hmm. There's something genuine about mourning, isn't there? Right. Yes. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's an opportunity, I love that, an opportunity to reevaluate where you stand. There is nothing like death to make you look at your own life, is there? You go to a funeral of, I don't know, a cousin or a brother 
especially when you, when you start going to funerals of people who are about your age. See, because then um, the living will lay it to heart. And even if it's, you, know, you might be a, a very young person going to the funeral of an aged, beloved, great-grandparent who died in her late 90s. Um, it does make you reflect, doesn't it? And you can see that that's the scene that's in view, I think. It's not you on your deathbed, it's you at the funeral, and it's you having a quiet drink with your cousins afterwards, and you sitting down and thinking in the evening, in the quietness of your own room, look, this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. In this sense, that the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. You want to say, so it gets it backward, don't you? Because you, you think you're made wise by being in that place, but maybe that's what it's getting at. That, yeah, you'll find the wise people there. Joel? Just there's a time component that makes these things better. Right. And it seems like all these things are better because there's been something that's been developed. You know, they're, the day of mourning is better because it's a lifetime. It's either knowing that person, mm. or if it is you, then it's a lifetime of your accomplishments and you're growing up in good reputation. But you know, birth is, is a great time, it's a celebration, but it's not based on a, a life that's been developed, right? It's a, it's right. a celebration of a life that's to come. That's fascinating because that's linked to some of the things that. Um, pop up later where, where time is significant. Um, what do you all think of that? Is that the, um, this, the slow, steady maturing of relationship and, and character is what... Yeah. It, yeah, it, it, that's what you, you, you reap at in the house of mourning. And it's, it's wonderful. It, it's, not, it's not like saying... Going to the house of mourning is um, better than uh, lying semi-conscious in a ditch. You know, it's like, no, it's, it's better than the day of birth. Better than something really good, like the day of a new life coming into the world. Well, better still is to learn from the accumulated character and relationship and growth in maturity of a life well-lived. Yeah, yeah. The death of a believer is the. That was years ago I did that. Did did you watch that on YouTube or something? Or did I do it again recently? She stalks me. Thank you. I'm glad. So, so I I should tell you the backstory. So, this was. I was asked to. um, Actually, I was asked, I think it was 2014. To, to give some lectures at Trinity Reformed Church in Moscow, Idaho. They're Epiphany lectures, and I've been asked to do the same thing again next year, which I'm very excited about. And um, I'm not excited about the subject, because they want me to talk about critical social justice ideology, which is like, <sighs> please, can I teach the Bible? Um, but they want me to talk about that. So, but last time, I talked about death. And we had in our congregation in London at the time a young lady who has since died in her 
late 20s called Ruth. And I think I might have told the story even in one of those talks. And some of you have been praying for Ruth, um, Ruth Vandenbroek, formerly Ruth Field. Um, uh, I went to visit her in hospital once and <laughs> she had, she needed so many drugs that they, they basically surgically implanted a metal port in the centre of her chest so they didn't have to keep putting new lines into her arms because she was tiny. She had cystic fibrosis. And it's a, cystic fibrosis is a horrible, horrible disease, which basically you're, you've got one genetic defect which messes with everything. You can't digest fats, so you don't grow properly. You end up with, it's a, it's a lung disease, so your lung gets scar, lungs get scarred and they don't function properly. And the life expectancy is, is you know, mid-teens, and she lived to her mid-twenties. She had a lung transplant, and that produced some great benefits, and then, as they always, almost always do, it kind of tailed off in efficacy. But I went to see Ruth in hospital, and there she is, like this tiny waif-like adult in a bed with this, you know, wired up to everything. And I'm pretty sure I didn't do her any good at all. <laughs> Seriously. But she did, she was such an encouragement to me. You know, and there I am, I'm kind of nearly twice her height, three times her weight. You know, I, I could lift her up with one hand. Her husband was a farrier. And she wasn't married at that time. She married shortly afterwards. So he, he does horses, horseshoes. I mean, he's built like a truck, David. And it was really hilarious looking at them together because it was, she's so tiny and he's just stacked. <laughs> but at, in her life and in her death, she was such a gift to the church. And it struck me in giving those talks, back to the talk you mentioned, that the death of a believer is their last gift to their brothers and sisters in Christ. Because the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. You get to make your friends wise by the manner of your life when it's given up in death. Now, can we go back to the teenager wanting the smartphone again? We haven't mentioned smartphones for like 10 minutes, but can you answer that question for me now? Or at least can you say, for what good purposes could somebody have a device like this and what bad things will they just not do with it? Does it help you it actually might, considerations like this actually shunt some decisions from um, this box into this one, don't they? When you start to realise, okay, what really matters? I mean, does it... The, the, the tortured angst that we first world problem people put ourselves through... <laughs> about, oh, what shall I wear, kind of, kind of decisions. And, and what actually happens sometimes is that death grabs a whole bunch of these things and says, yeah, you realise that, that didn't matter at all, and therefore it makes it really easy. Joel, you had your hand up. Excuse me. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I haven't had to struggle with that. Yes. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but Bidenflation is solving this problem for you. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Oh, notice. We, should, we, we do pray for our president. We should pray for him. Um, who'd want that job? Not me. Can't have it either, which is good. Um, so, so it's interesting. Can't, you can see can't, what happens. This is such a deep part of scripture, I think. Because it's like, I'm going to solve that problem for you and a gazillion others by making you forget all about it. Will you please think about something more important? Think about it right. And then come back and tell me, what was it about um, what colour you wanted to make your perfectly beautiful, as it is, hair? (laughs) And of course, ladies, if you dye your hair, that's fine. You know what I mean? But, good name. So, I shouldn't get started on cosmetics. I'll get way out of my depth too fast. Um, I mean, the other thing, of course, and this is... um, Another thought that prompts the observation that you drew attention to, Mrs. Bennett. Um, there was one particular believer's death that was the greatest gift to the church. You know, Jesus, the, the most faithful man, the believing man, who, who in his death, he's, he's kind of like, welcome to the house of wisdom. Can you understand why this man had to die? Have you fully appropriated all of the gifts that he's giving you in his death there's a question to think about that puts into perspective all these other things you know Um, and so Jesus is the paradigm for us we should be seeking to live like him and die like him and be that kind of gift to others yes sir Mm-hmm. Isn't there some place on that we should put my need, my needs, and does it bring glory to God? Yeah, yeah. And make those decisions a little more apparent. Yes, yes. Yes. I think that's probably right. I think uh, one way, if, if, if you're not sure whether a decision belongs in the, the top left, or the, the top right box, before you go telling yourself this is really, really complicated, really, really difficult, just ask yourself, is there something that obviously brings glory to God here? And if there is one that obviously glorifies God in a way that the other doesn't, maybe maybe it's not so difficult to figure it out after all. Yes. So then you're back with the 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 problem is doing what you know you ought to do, not figuring it out, and and having the integrity to admit to yourself, yeah, I know what I ought to do here. Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. Um, I, I was uh, talking to a pastor today, another pastor, a church in Fort Worth. Uh, he left a uh, ministry in the Midwest uh, where they'd planted like well over a dozen churches. And he, was doing, he was great, really exciting. And he left that ministry to come to a church in Fort Worth because, he said, he, he felt 
a, a call to help churches that needed to, to turn around, that churches that have been in decline numerically and in, in various other ways, been st basically struggling churches to help struggling churches to, to head in a better direction. And since he's arrived in just a few months, things have got a lot better. And I thought, man, this guy's the real deal, you know? And we would disagree on loads of things. If we talked theology, you know, goodness gracious, we'd have not fisticuffs because he's not that kind of a guy and I hope I'm not, but, but we'd have found all kinds of things we disagreed with. But I just thought, man, blessed be this congregation to have a man like that who gave up a ministry where he was at home and his family's there and, and is growing. To, to a, I'll go somewhere that's declining because I feel called to, to that. So many ministers feel called to, I feel called to a growing church. And it's, growing churches need pastors. You need pastors, you know. But to see this man, he recognised that his distinctive gifts were helping in those kinds of scenarios. So he'd been to one, and now he's come to another. Just a, blew me away. What a, what a guy. What a great shepherd. So there's an example for him to say, actually, this is an easy decision, because one of these options glorifies God. It's me using the gifts I know that I've got. That's great. I love that. Um, do you want to look at the next couple of verses we've got six or seven minutes left and I don't know whether having started seven or eight minutes late means I should run on seven or eight minutes or whether that would just look like taking advantage of you all maybe I'll just keep going and see what happens I don't know um, verse five we've got another thing that's better um, I think here there is a, again there's a connection to what was going on before because remember the house of mourning where you get to consider the life well lived of the person who has got to the end of their days the house of the of mourning is full of the wise because the wise are, are there they're taking it to heart and verse five it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools but here now the direction changes a little and we're leaving behind the the life and death the 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 mourning scene and we're just thinking about well what's better to listen to wise people or fools and that shouldn't be too difficult for us to work out but then there's this fantastic illustration which in verse six which i think sheds some light on this for as the crackling of thorns under a pot so is the laughter of the fools this also is vanity now what on earth is that about Crackling of thorns under a pot. What's that? Go on, Anne. Okay, good. So if if you've got a pot and you're making soup or something, and and if the the thorns crackling under a pot. <laughs> Um, helps make the soup, you can then go and do the business God has given you to be busy with. Yes, good. But have any of you ever tried to put thorns on an open fire? Dry bushes, dry thorn bushes. What happens? Right. Yeah, they're... <laughs> Kids love it, right? Because you've got like, you put some logs on the fire and all the adults are kind of having a 
mug of cocoa or a glass of wine in the evening. And it's sort of like just it's lovely and it's, the evening is cool. And we had some people around our house a month or so ago. Evening wasn't that cool, but they wanted a fire anyway. So I'm like, okay, great. And so everyone's sort of around the fire. We're having a drink. And this didn't happen, right? But imagine, here comes some six-year-old boy, probably, <laughs> with a massive dried-out bushy, thorny thing and kind of puts it on and it's like sparks and crackling. It's like, yeah, great. Meanwhile, somebody is trying to warm soup on the fire in a pot. Crackling of thorns under a pot. It's an absolute pain in the neck. It's full of light and spangliness and excitement and sparks everywhere and, oh, it's fun and flames and, oh, let's get another one. But it's totally useless for warming your soup. Crackling of thorns under a pot is not what you want. But boy, is it tempting, short-term, thrill-seeking, entertainment, watch everyone burn their eyebrows off, fun. Can you see? So it's much better, verse 5. Now read verse 5 and 6 again and see what it's saying. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. So what's the song of fools like? For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, which fools love because it's like sparks. and As the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. And fools love that. Superficial, short-term, unproductive, disruptive, spectacle rather than now I'm just going to sit and stir the soup and wait patiently see back to the the time thing you see it's much better to hear that and in verse 6 it's the rebuke of the wise isn't it, than the song of fools. So this wise person, can you see how the scene has shifted? It's now, I think we're around a campfire now. We're not in, not at a funeral. And you're around a campfire, but your granddad, Christian granddad, or maybe Pastor Neil, and he's not quite honoured to be your granddad. Pastor Neil's there, and this time he has something to say, and he really wants you to pay attention. And it will be better for you to hear the rebuke of the wise than to say, oh, let's go and get some thorns and put them on the fire. <laughs> Which would be so much more fun. Can you see what the, the picture that's being created? The, the, just go and find somebody wise who will wrap you on the knuckles and tell you the truth when you've contemplated something stupid or done something stupid. Much better. Now, again, it it doesn't address directly any of the scenarios that we looked at earlier, does it? But does it help you attain a perspective from which to view those kinds of top right-hand box questions? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes, yes. Yes. I think you're right. There's this kind of chicken and egg situation, isn't there? You, it takes wisdom to hear the rebuke of the wise. And that's a Proverbs point, isn't it? Um, the wise man listens in the book of Proverbs and will hear a rebuke, whereas the fool, a babbling fool will come to ruin. They, they stop speaking just for long enough to draw breath to start speaking again. Um, yeah, I think it's, I think you're exactly right. And, and yet, there is something, well, this is clearly directed like um, Proverbs to, specifically to the sun. This is directed to the assembly. We're all here. So the expectation is that we're all going to pay attention. Um, I had one other thought then, and it's escaped my mind. Bear with me one second. Give me ten seconds, see if I can remember it. No, sorry. One more illustration then. And then I'll let you go because it's two and a half minutes past. We've got 30 seconds. Remember Nicodemus? Came to Jesus at night and had... You know, we, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God and Jesus is like, yeah, whatever. Uh, we know some things also Jesus re- responds to him. And he rebukes him quite fiercely. I mean, it it's not, doesn't come across as fierce in the text until you look closely at what he's saying in John chapter 3. And he's, uh, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things. He's really kind of roasts him and if it had been in public it would have been embarrassing and Nicodemus is a fascinating character because he pops up a couple more times in John's gospel and the first time in John chapter 7 the rest of the Pharisees are criticizing Jesus and Nicodemus speaks up and says "Mm, does our law condemn somebody without first listening to what they got to say contradicting the entire Sanhedrin Then again in chapter 19, he goes with Joseph of Arimathea to bury the body of Jesus. So he's a tremendously wise man, the teacher of Israel, who I I think, I guess, he was converted. At least the, the, the trajectory which is hinted at by those three or so cameos in John's Gospel suggests that kind of movement. And it comes from being willing to hear the rebuke of the wise. So, there we are. I, I am. Um, there are some some questions. Just to get back to where we started, then we'll finish. There are some questions, some decisions, when it comes to making difficult decisions, where if you try to tackle the question directly you may not be able to figure out what to do. You'll get stuck in, Emma, your example earlier about, well, is it altering your appearance or enhancing your appearance? You know, that's one example of a question. Yeah, so you, you scratch your head and you try and work out to where it is and it's somewhere in the middle on that scale and you don't know what to do. Whereas if you just say, let me forget about this for a while and let me consider the task of 
steady, long-term growth in wisdom. Reflecting on what makes a life well-lived. So in the house of mourning, there will be wise people who are learning from this good and faithful servant. And not being grabbed by the short-term ephemeral but destructive crackling of thorns under the pot. Then you suddenly, what will happen is difficult decisions become instinctive to you. And that's what wisdom is. A mind and a heart that is shaped by the scriptures and shaped by scriptural priorities can instinctively start to see what's wise and what's not. But it just takes a long time. With, on which note, long time, um, I think I should probably stop. Um, if you want to hang out a little bit longer, I'm happy to, but I want to let people go, including those at home who would like to. Um, so let me lead us in prayer, and then we'll conclude. Merciful Father, thank you for drawing us deeply into the questions which, when carefully considered, will start to create in us long-term wisdom and skill at life and faithfulness and the capacity to make these difficult decisions well. Please would you cultivate these virtues in us so that we may grow wiser and more Christ-like. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.